0: Good afternoon, um, and thank you very much for coming to Hudson Institute. We have uh, an especially interesting and timely panel. As I believe many of you know, the President is um, due to make a speech at 12.45 regarding Iran, and at that time, we're going to cut away to see what the President has to say. We're going to speak for about uh, 40 minutes, see what the President has to say. We will come back, speak some more, and then I'd like to open up the floor to take some of your questions, and we can uh, discuss like that. Um, I would like to, in the meantime, introduce our fantastic panel. Um, it's really a, a really a privilege, and a privilege and a pleasure to be up here with uh, with all of these gentlemen, uh, many of whom I've, I've known for a long time, and whose work is very very important. And uh, you probably know about much of their work. Um, this is to my immediate right is Omri Sarin a communications strategist and academic. He is a managing director at the Israel Project, a D.C.-based organization that works with journalists on Middle East issues, Uh, a fellow of the Claremont Institute, and a Ph.D. uh, PhD candidate at USC's Annenberg School. I will also say that Omri's information regarding the Iran, uh, regarding the JCPOA the last few years has been uh, invaluable. You will recognize him as a – frequent uh, source in different media accounts of the Iran deal fight. To his right uh, is Ambassador Alberto Fernandez, President of the Middle East Broadcasting Networks. Ambassador Fernandez is the President of uh, ME, uh, MEBN, a multimedia corporation funded by the uh, uh, Broadcasting Board of Governors that provides, provides news and information across the Middle East and North Africa. Previously, Ambassador Fernandez was the Vice President of the Middle East Media Research Institute, and a Foreign Service Officer from 1983 to 2015. The first time I saw Ambassador Fernandez, uh, I was living in Cairo. I saw him speaking on, on Al Jazeera in perfect Arabic, and I was floored. It was r- fantastic. So it's really a, a really a pleasure to be on the same panel with him. Thanks very much for being with us at Hudson. Uh, to his right is, uh, is Michael Pregent. Uh, a fellow at Hudson, uh, a colleague of mine here at Hudson, he is uh, an adjunct fellow, a, a former intelligence officer with three decades of experience uh, working in security, terrorism, counterinsurgency, and policy issues in the Middle East, North Africa, and Asia. And Mike has been uh, Mike has been central not only here at Hudson in uh, explaining what the Iran argument is about, not just regarding nuclear issues, but but uh, terror issues, military and security issues as well so mike thanks so much it was mike who put this important panel together and i'm really happy and proud to moderate it so let's get off uh let's get off quickly and we'll start with a with a round of introductory comments and then again we'll we'll be looking in to see what the president's say about 12:45. omri if you would like to and by the way so if you guys want to give me a heads up i have a watch here but it's not uh it's not perfect so when uh, he takes okay. the
1: podium, we'll get the thumbs up.
0: Okay, fantastic. Uh, Omri, if you'd like to uh, start uh, us off.
1: Thank you for that, uh, and thank you all for being here today. Uh, I want to very, very briefly give an overview of uh, what what to look for when the president starts speaking, how uh, they've been talking about it, and uh, also how we got here and how they're structuring what it is they're doing uh, preparing to move forward. So. The overarching thing to understand about today's speech is that it's not an Iran deal speech. It is a speech about Iran. And that is a distinction that has been at the core of this administration's policymaking since at least April formally and uh, a few months before that. What does that mean? They take it as a matter of assessment and policy that the Obama administration uh, made an enormous mistake by subordinate, both made the decision to and made an enormous mistake when they made the decision to subordinate all Iran policy to the preservation of the Iran deal. They believe, and they are right, that the Obama administration uh, looked the other way on Syria, looked the other way on Iran's seizure of the Levant, looked the other way at Iranian ballistic missile development because they wanted to avoid a confrontation with the Iranians that might endanger the deal. Their response was that, uh, having made that assessment, their policy response and their structural response was to put the Iran deal as on a list as one of many threats and not the most immediate threat uh, that uh, to American national interests from Iran. That was formalized in the six-month assessment that they launched in April. That the president will be rolling out, <coughs> and even and though there there's a wide range of opinion about the deal itself, uh, a far, much more narrow range about Iran itself, but a a spectrum of opinion about the deal within the administration. It's been widely reported and is more or less accurate that Secretary Tillerson is on one side, CIA Director Pompeo and Nikki Haley are on the other side, and in between, various people fall. But all of them make the same argument, which is we got to get past the Iran deal to deal with the immediate sort of, uh, the immediate threats that the Iranians pose to American interests. The debate inside the administration has been, the entire time, uh, do on the way there, do you stop at a station of decertification or do you stop at a station of certification? Uh, For all that this administration gets uh, (laughs) criticized, sometimes rightly, for uh, not being on the same page, not having consensus, that has been a consensus for six months, and within the last month, just about everything else became a consensus issue. What that means is that uh, they wanted the whole time to focus on the policy review, but finally concluded that, yes, they did have to stop at this decertification station. Why? Among other reasons, because it's the law, and the president has to certify to Congress every 90 days. There are not the four so-called Corker-Cardin conditions, four and a half Corker-Cardin conditions have been met. That's ultimately why the president is speaking today but it's not what he's going to be speaking about. So very quickly, why did he decertify? The Corker card and legislation requires the president, as a matter of law, to certify the truthfulness, to certify that he assesses, truthfully certify that he assesses, that four conditions, really four and a half conditions, remain true every 90 days. Conditions two and three are not what we're going to be talking about today. Those are the material breach condition and the uh, whether or not Iran is making covert progress toward a bomb. But conditions one and conditions four are a big deal. Condition one is that the president has to certify that Iran has verifiably, transparently and fully implemented the agreement and all technical and related agreements. Uh, There's a debate over what related agreements counts as, but at a minimum is the additional protocol that guarantees access to military sites and also may include the United Nations Security Council Resolution 2231 that that incorporated the deal as international law. There's a real debate over whether or not that condition is met. Uh, I think it's actually very difficult to argue that that condition has been met. Uh, the IAEA recently announced that they've been unable to verify that uh, certain parts of the deal, including Section T of the deal, Section T, Annex 1, Section T of the deal, which prohibits <clears throat> certain activities related to nuclear weapons development that are non-fizzle, computer modeling, timers, and so on. They've been unable to verify its implementation. That's not where the president is going to hang his hat. If the signals from the administration are correct, they're probably going to hang their hat on condition 4, which says that the president has to truthfully certify that sanctions relief is appropriate and proportionate to Iranian action and that it remains vital to the national interest of the United States. This administration does not believe that's true. Uh, They're also right not to believe that's true, but they certainly don't believe it's true, and they will decertify not what the speech is going to be about. They'll describe that, not what it's going to be about. The speech will be about... Uh, the policy review itself. Now that they have gotten the nuclear deal out of the way, what are they going to do with the policy review? They are, and we'll talk about this a lot more, so I'll just flag it here as something for you to look for. They're going to focus on the IRGC as the overarching bad actor uh, in Iran, and they're specifically going to, according to public reports that have already been reported, they're going to carve out a category labeled asymmetric threats and into that, they're going to talk about cyber offense, support for proxies, anti-ship missiles, ballistic missiles, the ability of Iran to uh, coerce us in the West by cracking down on their own population, the seizure of American hostages. That's what the speech is going to be about. Iran's bad behavior is an, in an asymmetric way and then cutting them off. And that is what to look for in the speech. That is uh, the framework with which you should approach it. The certification debate is done. He's The president will decertify it will go to Congress. What they do is hopelessly technical and complicated, but the speech itself will be about Iran's bad behavior.
0: Uh, Omri, thanks very much. That's great. And when we come back around, I'm going to want to ask you uh, if you can give us an idea of what that uh, what that will look like in Congress. Yep. when it goes there. In the meantime, thanks very much. And um, that fantastic curtain raiser. So that's great. Uh, Ambassador Fernandez. Like. Thank you. Um, I
2: think uh, Omri puts... Um, his uh, finger on the the key thing, which is uh, the expectation that this is going to be about Iran as a whole and not just the JCPOA. Why is that important? I was just in the region uh, just a few weeks ago in the Gulf, and this is exactly what has been lacking in US foreign policy. Uh, In the eyes of our allies and our friends, our longtime friends, for years, since 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 the JCPOA was signed, and even be- before the JCPOA was signed, you may remember that the previous administration talked about um, uh, you know equilibrium, the equilibrium, the idea that Iran and others would share the region. Uh, what it turned out was that, in in a way, the the JCPOA ate the previous administration's Iran policy. It became about JCPOA, Uber, Alice, over everything else, uh, everything else was was uh, subordinated to it. This is an agreement which exploded on a sea of Syrian blood. Uh, to to its uh, to its uh, wasn't actually signed, but to its to its uh, to its uh, a fulfillment or, or to its its signing. So I think that the the idea that this is going to look at Iran uh, broadly and Iranian issues broadly is something that has been extremely needed. It's going to be very well received by <clears> the <throat> overwhelming majority of, uh, of regional powers uh, in the Middle East. It's something that they've been desperately wanting to see from the beginning. Uh, you can say that JCPOA and, and Omri's much more of an expert on the, the details of, of it than, than I am has many flaws but one of the basic flaws was that it divorced itself from the reality of Iranian behavior in the region. This is a grown-up effort, an adult effort by this administration to address or to redress that, that fatal flaw, one of several flaws. It's something which has been long needed, uh, uh, that needed to be done. It'll also be a very interesting challenge for ourselves and actually for, for our adversaries. Some uh, people who follow Iran say that as important as the JCPOA is, uh, something which is even more important for Iran is the health, well-being, growth, and and flourishing of, of the IRGC. Uh, so if indeed there is this focus, as we expect, on the IRGC, it sets up a very interesting question. Uh, For for Iran and for our adversaries, this whole question of, you know, what what do you care most most about? Um, So I I think that I am expecting that this is a very positive thing. I think this is a uh, a a diplomatic positive step of the first order. And I think it's been done the right way. I know when I was in the Gulf, people were saying, you know, damn it, we expected this, you know, in February. Um, but, but the administration did it the right way. They did it deliberately, they consulted, they consulted broadly, they were careful. I think from all we know, they are being careful about what they're doing. This, this is not reckless, this is not uh, some of the rhetoric that you're hearing by uh, fiction writers out there or, or frustrated fiction writers out there. This is, I think, a careful, serious foreign policy. The challenge, I talked about the challenge from the Iranian side. The challenge from our side, and then I'll close, is, is this. Uh, nothing occurs in a vacuum. And we have the JCPA. We also have eight years of plus of Iranian misadventure in the region. There are, there's history that's happened there are consequences that have happened over those years. Uh, You know, the Iranian spread, the spread of Iranian influence, the spread of its proxies and players on the ground is something that happened on on the ground. For us, the challenge that I think beyond what the president says is going to be, uh, what is our ground game gonna look like? Because the Iranian regime through its actors, through the IRGC, through its proxies, have had years where with near impunity, they were able to spread spread influence spread power in the region we're seeing this outside of kirkuk today even as we speak so so i think this is a a very good day i think uh a positive day but there's some real challenges going ahead
0: ambassador thanks very much uh and and you raise a very interesting question what does that ground game look like and that's something i'm going to want to talk about ask all of you especially when Omri was saying that one of the things we'll want to be looking at and one of the keys that they'll be using is talking about asymmetric threats and uh, in what ways will that actually push back on the fact that the Iranians are swallowing real, real estate in the region. So we'll come back around. In the meantime, Mike – or before that, Mike, if you would – if you would pick us up. so, So today is a good day,
3: but it is Friday the 13th for Iran. So that's, that's a good point. <laughs> All right, so the president will mention four pillars today, and then he'll follow it with a strategic message to the Iranian people. Pillar number one, neutralize Revolutionary Guard Corps activities, destabilizing activities in Iraq, in Syria, in Lebanon, in Yemen, and in Afghanistan as well.
0: If I, can, if I can just step in this second, Mike sure. tweeted this. If you look at Mike's Twitter feed, yeah. you can look at it from yesterday. So if you, you write it down, but you can also, if you miss it. Yeah, and I also did
3: 1224, so forgive me for that. It's
0: 1234. Yeah. <laughs> so, I,
3: I, I didn't notice Thank that. you. Oh, yeah. Thanks for retweeting it anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, so, um, number two target IRGC finances and sources of income. And that's loud, very loud to people that work with Iran, and I'll get to that in a second. Uh, Pillar number three, um, constrain Iran's ballistic missiles and advance weapons proliferation to proxies, primarily those in Yemen, those that are are pushing into Lebanon and Syria, and also we haven't seen them doing this yet with Iraqi uh, Shia militia proxies, with IRGC-led proxies, but that's a focus. And then the fourth one, is to end all paths to a nuclear weapon, to end Iran's path to a nuclear weapon. And so if you look at those four pillars, three of them are outside of the JCPOA. They deal with the IRGC, and they deal with ballistic missiles. And that's good because Iran says the ballistic missiles aren't part of the JCPOA, and we're saying we know, and how we're focusing on that. Um, Decertification, real quick, does not isolate the U.S. Iran is not the glue that holds U.S. allies together. The JCPOA will not cause our allies to to reject a, a $18 trillion economy for Iran's $480 billion economy. And I'll jump to the strategic message to the Iranian people. The U.S. actions today that you'll hear from the president are focused on the regime and the Revolutionary Guard Corps, as well as the besiege, The besiege is the most important thing because it's part of the IRGC. So the IRGC in its entirety is causing problems not only domestically in Iran, but externally. And the message will be to the Iranian people, respect your culture, respect the Iranian people. This is targeted against the oppressive regime inside Iraq and the oppressive regime's the actions by this regime outside of Iran. And, and those are all key. So if I'm, what I do in, in my in my job is I I put my red hat on. That means I, what is the enemy here today? When I say enemy, what is uh, what is Hezbollah here today? What is Kitab Hezbollah in Iraq here today? What is Kitab, what is Asab al Haq in Iraq here today? What is the Iraqi Ministry of Interior? I'm not saying they're an enemy, but what are they here today? What is Baghdad here today? What is Damascus here today? What is Beirut and what is Sana'a here today? And what they hear is... Is that, is that me? Does that mean I'm going to be targeted? Can I still pay a paycheck to Abu Mehdi al-Mohendis, who's a commander of the Hashd al-Shaabi in Iraq, who's a Soleimani lieutenant? You can't. <laughs> Can the U.S. target the Ministry of Interior for doing that? Yes. Can the U.S. protect allies against incursions by IRGC proxies using M1 Abrams tanks as, as they encroach on Peshmerga positions in Iraq? The, the tools that we're likely to, to – uh, well, the tools that we're likely to use after the president speaks at 1245 are going to be able to, to hit the Revolutionary Guard Corps everywhere. And that sends a loud message. So today is, uh, is, a, is like I said, Friday the 13th for Iran and a good day for, for those of us who ha- know who the Revolutionary Guard is. This is a good day for our, our regional allies this is, these are pragmatic buy-ins for our allies. I mean, even Macron has said, yeah, that does sound reasonable. We should, we, there shouldn't be a sunset clause. We should look at ballistic missiles. We should look at curbing the, the terrorist activities of the IRGC. And, and I'll leave it at that.
0: Great. Um, I was just going to say, I think their Friday the 13th is actually Saturday the 7th. That's the translation. But right. So this is our Friday the 13th for them. Right. I think that.
1: Let's go need a ground
0: Okay. What I want to – Mike, you made a very interesting point about the the president's speech will partly be directed uh, at the regime and partly at the Iranian people, which is uh, very interesting and a standard tactic of political messaging. And this is not what the Obama administration did. Is there some sort of expectation in the administration that we should look to see if the Iranian – public will move? I mean, with the Green Revolution in 2009, of course, they took to the streets. Is there some sense like, well, who knows? Now that we're targeting the IRGC, now that we're targeting the regime, they might actually move, and especially if they're addressing the, the public as well. What's your sense? So, so,
3: so, the, the good thing about this message is the Iranian people know that when we say we're gonna target the IRGC domestically, that means the besiege. That means the organization that falls under the IRGC that puts people in jail for expressing their political opinions that are contrary to the regimes. Uh, I got asked the other qu- the question the other day: Who's whispering in Trump's ear? How, Tillerson, e- even though the administration is all on board with us, based on based on what we heard yesterday, that the media focuses on Tillerson and Mattis saying that we should not decertify the Iran deal. The president, I answered it this way: The president is listening to his intelligence community. Not about what they know, about what they don't know. Mm. There are too many intelligence gaps. Like you mentioned, Section T, Annex One.
4: Mm.
3: Th- we can't intercept this with signals intelligence. We can't develop a human source and put them inside forto and, Parch- and Parchin. Uh, there is no radioactive or fissile signature um, at these sites. Annex, Annex One Section T, is where the intel community can't tell us whether or not Iran is in compliance. It's also the place where the IAEA has said they've, they they don't know what's going on. And and if you look at what the IAEA has said, they said, we're, we're not simply going to go in there to send a political message to Iran. <laughs> so they're not even inspecting it. They're waiting for us to develop intelligence to tell them to go look for something when we can't. It's a blind area. And, you know, when you hear this, this thing about the Iran deal, you know, it's either this deal or war or this is the best deal we're going to get better deal allows us to look at photo and parchment. A better deal allows us to have 24-7 access. But the, the Iranian people today will hear something uh, very significant from the American president. We know your regime is impressing you. Okay. One key point on the yeah. Green Revolution, and I'll stop. The intelligence community did not see the Green Revolution coming. There were no indicators. It, mm-hmm. it just happened. So we don't know when things like this are going to happen. But the, Amer- the Iranian people. We'll hear loudly from this president that if it happens
0: again, that they may actually have an ally this time. Well presumably they are ready. I mean if the president is is actually trying to divide in a sense of like we have no we love the Iranian people. Now step aside and let us deal with the bad the regime people who rule you. I certainly hope they're prepared this time around because that's you know it, it may lead to that. Again, it can't just be sanctions, it has to be other
3: things. But yes, the message should be sent loud and clear. Um, when you hear Revolutionary Guard Corps domestically in Iran today know that that means besiege operations and that's key because Qasem Soleimani polls very high in Iran he's their John Wayne John F Kennedy the besiege does not the besiege is part of the IRGC and the besiege is what Iranians are afraid of Um,
0: when Mike said I'm gonna ask you this first when Mike was saying uh, a better deal includes access to Fordo, access to Parchin. Look, to what extent when we're talking about the deal and we're talking about how much tighter we can make the deal, is that did the Iranians really say, you know what, that's a good idea. We're gonna give the Americans a second chance to not fail. So yeah, so, so what does this mean when yeah, we talk about
1: this? Let's clarify some terms. So uh, Ali nonan who's a former uh, IAEA inspector, he sat atop their verification shop, worked there for like 27 years. He testified in July of 2015. And he said, uh, listen, you keep hearing the administration say that this is the most uh, intrusive inspection regime in the history of the world. was never true. But even if it's true, uh, they're only talking about parts of the verification regime. There are actually, he explained, three parts of the verification regime. One is known facilities where they're doing nuclear work. Uh, this is places like Natanz. This is uh, Fordo. By the way, these, we're, we're being a little uh, imprecise So places like Natanz, Fordo, etc., known military sites. We have 24/7 inspection. We have cameras, etc. Uh, those are also the places the Iranians are least likely to cheat. Then he explained two additional parts of the verification regime. One is for where they might be doing nuclear material uh, but cheating. Undeclared nuclear facilities, where they're where they're uh, doing nuclear work, fizzle work. And he said there the inspection regime is about a five because we can do environmental testing, we can uh, test soil samples, and so on. And so it's you like mean five, like red and
0: rank one out of ten.
1: One out of ten. Yeah, yeah one out of ten. He says it's a five. Uh, and then he said, and then there's the regime, and we didn't call it Section T at the time, but he called it. Uh, then there's the part of the verification regime that has to do with n- undeclared, so cheating. Uh, non-fizzle nuclear work, things like computer modeling, timers, and so on. The stuff that might be going on at Park Shin. Uh The stuff that might be going on at any military, military base, it's where they would be doing it. And the IAEA was asked, uh, hey, what have you... Well, there's been two parts of the news cycle on this. At first, the IAEA uh, told Reuters a few months ago, listen, unless we, know, we have them dead to rights, we're not asking for access to a site because we think it's just Trump trying to blow up the deal. They said they don't want to give him an excuse to blow up the deal. So they said they're just not going to push for it. Then a couple weeks ago, they said, OK, let's not talk about that part. But uh, uh, Director General Mano got a question at a press conference, said, hey, uh, Annex 1 section T says that uh, Iran is prohibited from conducting this list of activities, non-fizzle work. Uh, The category is certain activities related to the design and development of a nuclear explosive device. have you verified they're not doing it, right? It's not a matter of, have you caught them cheating? Have you verified they're not doing it? And he said, we're not even sure we have the authority to be the ones to verify it, because the deal was written really badly in that section. Uh, the Russians don't think we have the authority. The Iranians don't think we have the authority, is what Director General Mano said. Uh, no, it'd be good if somebody clarified that for us, is what he said. Uh, I'm sorry, clarified what? Whether, whether, right? whether they even have the authority to okay. begin looking to verify Okay. It. Uh, that is one of many flaws in the verification regime, right? We can I mean there was also an en- enormous debate about the second regime. And Ollie said, uh, Dr. Nunn said uh, that part of the regime on a scale of one to 10, I give it zero. There's no way we're ever going to catch those guys. There's also debates about whether we'd even catch them if they were doing undeclared nuclear work. That's one of th- what three things that the administration describes as fatal flaws. So we're talking about now strengthening the deal to get back to what Mike said and Lee said. One is you need to, the verification regime needs to be tightened up for those last two levels, for uh, nuclear activity and undeclared sites, and for uh, so-called Section T activities, or activities that are that contribute to the development of a nuclear weapon but don't involve the use of fissile material. Got to strengthen those, that's one. and. You got to give the IAEA some backbone, some more authority, its spine, and so on. Second fatal flaw: uh, Iran's non-nuclear activities, according to the JCPOA, that we believe touch nuclear. For instance, ballistic missiles. Right? Those are not included in the deal. They should, even though the deal unwinds ballistic missile sanctions. The restrictions are not included in the deal. This administration believes that any deal worth having, any deal that we shred the international sanctions regime for. Should include ballistic missiles. Okay,
0: can I I slow it down for one thing? Because I I mean, uh, uh, thanks for leading us through all the different flaws with the, you know, with the deal. I guess what I'm saying is, how does it really happen? Do the Iranians sit down and go like, "We totally want to do this," or is the administration sending a message to different people saying, "We think it's flimsy. We have troubles with it. We'd like to." Are they looking at the Europeans and saying?
1: Yeah. I, need to, I need to well, be, yeah, I need to be careful how I phrase this. Um, okay. There's a number of options that this administration will explore that range from the completely unilateral to uh, various uh-huh. levels of multilateral action. So how does this begin? It begins by saying, uh, the United States will say, these flaws, ballistic missiles, verification, and the sunset clause. Uh, as far as we're concerned, if they, st- if, this, if they stay in the deal, this is not a deal worth having. We will snap back it is a bad deal we will snap back okay then the question is all right what does that cause and who's willing to avoid that in the best case the iranians realize that uh if we really wanted the truth of this is stepping back this debate when you hear it in public is between can we do it versus will we be alienated from our allies that's how this debate gets described one side says the europeans won't go along it's useless it took years Uh, We have to have a good idea. The other side says, uh, of course, they'll go along. The side that says, of course, they'll go along is right. 100% of the time uh, in the construction of the original sanctions regime, people who are now former Obama officials, were then uh, active Obama officials, would go to the Hill and they would say, if you do this, it will never work. The Europeans will not go along. The sanctions regime will collapse. And they were wrong 100% of the time. Why? Why? because we are the most powerful nation in the history of the world, and our economy is the largest in the world. And when we go to international companies and we say, either you do business with Iran or you do business with us, they choose us every time. It's a no-brainer. Only in the -the down-the-rabbit-hole reverse universe of kind of the Ben Rhodes-Iran echo chamber could any intelligent person ever believe Mm -hmm. that anybody would ever pick Iran's Uh, Iran's, uh, relatively backwater economy to our modern industrial economy now the way this plays out in direct answer to lee's question we will say the administration will say the united states will say uh either help us fix this deal or we're bailing and the chips will fall where they may and your companies will have be given a choice in response to that hopefully hopefully the iranians but certainly hopefully the europeans will meet us halfway in trying to fix the deal and as has been publicly reported and Lee referenced uh, and Mike referenced as well. The Europeans uh, have uh, been more or less public about their willingness to entertain what they're calling add-ons, what many people call renegotiation, to the deal on these flaws.
0: I want to ask, thanks, thanks, Maria. I want to ask Ambassador Fernandez, who's, I know who's uh, he's back from the Gulf, but he's been elsewhere as well, what's your sense of what um, are your, uh, the Europeans are saying and what's the sense of what our Gulf allies are saying I mean, about about the idea of renegotiation? Do they see the deal under threat? And what are they thinking about this administration?
2: Well, I think the European one is uh, I'm less comfortable with because there's so much rhetoric related to right. the views that the, some Europeans may have about the administration. So it's a, right. it's a discourse that's extremely po- politicized. But in the region, certainly, uh, the fact that it, it, the, the, the policy scope is broadened in to include Iranian ambitions in the region beyond just the nuclear is what they've been waiting for for years now. Right. Um, and so I think that will be very well received. Uh, I don't think there's any doubt of that. They've been waiting for this, for right. specifically for this, uh, for a long time. The challenge is, as I said, is that facts on the ground have moved. Right. Syria today is not Syria in uh,
0: 2014. Well, let me ask you then, do you think that this, right now, do you think that uh, the various things the president will be rolling out today, do you think there's, again, to come back to the idea of asymmetrical threats, which are certainly important to challenge these, but we're also talking about like regular, traditional, orthodox threats, which includes people on the ground with weapons in Syria, Iraq, Lebanon, is there enough in there to do that? And what are what are our allies saying and likely to say?
2: I'm concerned about that, to be frank. Yes. I, I think that uh, what we're going to hear is is a good thing. Right. But I'm concerned, as I said, about the ground game, uh, because the other side, the adversary, has put in a lot more time and effort to do so. We have allies, we have allied governments, but but there's a there's this gray area, right? Right. Uh, we are, we're allied with the government of Iraq, and yet there's within the government of Iraq there are a host of, or even not the government of Iraq, but kind of in the government, there's a whole right. range of bad actors, from bad actors to outright terrorists like <laughs> muhandis you know, who are who are somehow connected or funded or on the payroll of, uh, uh, you know, uh, of the Iranian right. regime. You have a Lebanese branch of the Iranian right. regime with tremendous power in Lebanon. I didn't say proxy. Prox- right. No, no, red. Right. Absolutely agree. Um, branch. And, and so, so the challenge is you have this on the ground. All of this has developed. You talk about asymmetric warfare. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, you know, obviously, an obvious uh, follow-through to to today's announcement is strengthening our uh, our engagement with our allies, strengthening military cooperation, intelligence cooperation, uh, sending messages. We talked about the Iranian people. There's also populations in the Arab world who are up for grabs. Uh-huh. I'm talking, to be blunt, about Arab Shia populations. The United States government needs to put a hand out, a hand of friendship, a hand of solidarity, realizing we have allies, we have friends in the region, but you know the Shia population of Lebanon or, 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 or Saudi Arabia or Bahrain or Iraq, those are actually also, they should be in play. If we're going to play the if if we're going to challenge their
0: asymmetric game, we need to up our asymmetric. Can I ask you? I think those are important. Actually, I'm I'm, I'm going to ask Mike about this too, and then if you want to answer, because Mike has been in the region recently and he's seen, and and Mike has made uh, the last couple times we've been up here, Mike has made uh, a very moving and poignant case regarding the uh, regarding American complicity in what looks like a. Uh, an open war against the Sunnis. So while we should be, of course, engaging Shia populations, like you know, you have other answers aside from the Iranians. I guess another concern is we're also talking about the regional majority here, and how do we need how do we need to engage them, convince them that this rollout, this Iran review, means good things for them, and we're going to stop destroying their cities to get 37 ISIS fighters.
3: Right. So the more most important thing our Sunni regional allies and Sunnis in Iraq and Syria, basically the 20 million Sunnis of the Northern Middle East that are now half of them in the refugee population, are going to hear today that finally the United States is going to do something about Iran. Every time I travel to the region, I hear ISIS or Daesh, Sahajidin is very easy. Uh, Iran is the issue. Iran's creeping influence, and you're letting it happen. Um, Our complicity in... It's a sin of omission. Maybe it's a sin of commission. But we, we tend to obfuscate the role of Iran in the Ministry of Interior of Iraq mm-hmm. in, in its proxies. We, we literally, I don't, this doesn't make sense to anyone who, who worked Iraq in 2007 or before that, that a designated terrorist, Abu Medhi al-Mohendis, the leader of Qatab Isbellar, a, a, a an entity created by Qasem Soleimani's Quds Force, is receiving a paycheck from the Ministry of Interior and the IRGC. And when you when you ask State Department, you'll hear from Brett McGurk that that's exaggerated, that's not true. We have leverage with Baghdad. When you pose the question, if we have leverage with Baghdad, how is it that a designated terrorist that killed Americans is on a payroll, is leading the hospital Shabi, is currently just, just south of Kirkuk, with U.S. M1 Abrams tanks and a Sabahol Hawk flags flying from them, getting ready to push on a U.S. ally. So mm-hmm. it's not only our Sunni regional allies. Our Sunni's right. in Iraq. It's the Kurds in Iraq, mm-hmm. Kurds in Iran. Um, Turkey's a completely separate issue. So I'll stay out of that. Um, but they are looking for concrete actions. So the, the one thing we have going for us, and this is not a good thing, is that the IRGC will take some action after today. The IRGC has threatened to Likely target not. U.S. soldiers in Iraq. Okay, Our advisors are outnumbered 20 to 1 by the, the Shifification of this Iraqi security force that took place under Maliki.
0: Um, and Can I ask you something? Yeah, yeah, sure. I mean, also, what these because it's interesting, not just the statements and the speeches, but what they must have been gaming down the road, because we've known for at least throughout the course of the Obama years, there was a... Explanation: The reason that we can't act or can't do anything is because IRGC will target our troops in Iraq. They'll target our troops in Afghanistan, and so they're making the same threats. So this administration presumes, like, yeah, we've heard this. We have a response. What's your What's your sense?
3: There's too much weight being put into the statement: the Iraqi security forces are our friends, our allies, and will be a bulwark Mm. against Iran's activities in Iraq. That we can rely on the Iraqi. Military and the federal police to stop IRGC proxies and it's you're not, saying we're relying too much We're relying too much on 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 okay. false statements. The intelligence doesn't back that up uh,
0: The really there's got to be someone is like who's saying uh, by the way some of these guys are we're arming them But they might not be all of them are friends.
3: Yeah, yeah. so so here's here's the fatal flaw in engaging with a security force when you're fighting something as bad as Isis the guy next to you can be a Shia militiaman working for the Kurds Force, and he'll be your partner fighting ISIS, and you develop a, a trust and a relationship. Once ISIS is done, you become the next target, or the Kurds become the next target, and we've heard that from, you know, Case Kazali, who, who's a designated terrorist who killed Americans, who's in the Hashd al-Shabi, warning that I can't wait to kill Americans again. If you go against Iran's interests, if you walk away from the Iran deal, even even uh, when the the uh, the test balloon, you know, where you, you test the concept of designating the IRGC, any designation of the Revolutionary Guard car will result in Iraqi
0: IRGC proxies targeting. Will there be Americans? targeted assassinations of will we target IRGC figures?
3: We won't do it in, initially. We'll do it as a, as a response. Um, we should designate. So, if pillar number two, pillar number one says neutralize IRGC activities, right? Stabilizing activities. Neutralize, uh, as a military term, means negate the threat. It means we'll be we'll,
0: we're going to be. <laughs> Do you mean assassinate? We're
3: going to no, not assassinate. These are legitimate military targets. They're terrorists. It's not an assassination. Okay. It's a military kill, kill operation. Um, and and those. Targets will be recommended to the administration. There will be key individuals in Iraq and Syria. We've seen we've seen that happen with the two Lebanese Hezbollah fighters. Uh, that's before. what's coming. case Kazali, Mukhandis.
0: What is coming to those guys?
3: They'll be they'll be, they'll be the same type of uh, reward, basically. We'll capture these individuals. If you're going to do it with Lebanese Hezbollah, who's a branch of the RGC, you're definitely going to do it against an Iraqi, uh, an IRGC-led proxy leader who targets Americans. And I'm concerned as, as a – so if I was on the ground, I would say our force protection has to go up. If I was at the embassy in Baghdad, right. force protection has to go up. I wouldn't be surprised uh, if aid starts to launch you know, rockets. Really? Okay. It's, it's a response that they, they take, and it's right. easy to do because you do it, nothing happens, and you get to say somebody else did it. But I just haven't yeah, yeah. time. I've got I've got eyes on. Are we? Oh, you do. He hasn't he hasn't stepped up yet, right? Okay. So, so people say, well, that's that's far fetched. That's not going to happen. But if you look at what Iran has promised to do, you want to mention that as public? Okay. But if you look at um, what Revolutionary Guard Corps generals, what Qasem Soleimani has said, what leaders like Hes Ghazali and Mohandes have said, they're waiting for the green light to target Americans. Mm-hmm. And this is something that will, to them, be devastating. In DC, we call it a uh, symbolic gesture. This is this is not symbolic to them. Can
1: I can yeah. I actually inter? Sure. Uh, I I mean we actually talked about this last night a little bit while we were trying to game out uh, what we talk about today. I'm I think I'm more inclined to believe that the Iranians will largely roll with it. There'll be some, some there'll be some rocket fire, but even if there's an escalation, something that it's incredibly important to emphasize. The Iranians have already begun escalating in the region. Uh, This administration, partly the timing and the nature of this policy review, involves a response to concrete signs that the Iranians have escalated. The administration has begun to quietly talk. Uh, Well, the Israelis have made it very, very clear that the Iranians are uh, distributing advanced rockets and advanced weapons to Hezbollah in a way that they've never done to, in the past, and there are reports that the administration has also seen indicators that the Iranians are similarly have made a qualitatively a qualitative decision to increase the pace and nature of the uh, weapons mm-hmm. that they supply to their proxies or to at least some of their proxies in a way that is escalating things in the region. Escalation will not be there. There will be a. There will be specific actions that are taken in a theater like the Middle East, uh, where we will designate the RGC. They will respond in a way because they've said that they have to. There'll be a lot of the stuff that uh, Mike talks about. But don't lose sight of how we got here and why the administration is doing this, which is there's been an escalation. Yeah, that's They're a really important anyway.
2: point. Uh, when people talk about in the previous administration defenders of the JCPOA, they talk about as if it's JCPOA or war. Actually, the, the reality that we've had before it was signed, again, signed in quotation marks, mm-hmm. before it was agreed to and after agreed to was JCPOA and war. That's the situation we are in right now, and we have been.
3: Basically, the JCPOA provides cover for the, for the Iranians to develop a conventional military capability in five years where they become one of the strongest militaries in the Middle East. They are not now. So, oh, like, how, at how about, eight years of ballistic missile capability, and at ten to thirteen years,
0: a nuclear power. How about this? How about before it goes on, and then because afterwards we'll discuss it in detail. Right, right. But before it comes on, thank goodness the president is late. How bad? <laughs> surprisingly, astonishingly. How about if um, if the three of you give uh, scenarios as quickly as you can? What happens? What happens now? Uh, Mike, maybe you want to start since I interrupted you. Okay, so I'll go from the the close fight, meaning Americans closest to
3: Iran, the me- medium, and then and then the back here. So, after the president's speech, we're likely to hear protests from from our, the IRGC and Iran, and these types of threats. Mm-hmm. Uh, whether there are actions or not, we don't know. Hopefully, there are not. Um, then we're going to hear the the attacks on administration for for jeopardizing the Iran deal. and From any, whom
0: do those come from? From the, the media, from, from RGC, supporters from, of the,
3: from, j- of the okay. JCPOA. And then if there are any attacks against Americans or any rockets uh, launched towards Baghdad, that'll be blamed specifically on, on what happened. Again, they were already doing this prior to this. Right. They are already positioning, they were already uh, establishing these areas. And then at the end of it, we're actually in the fortunate position of the world seeing who Iran really is and actually strengthening our arguments for renegotiating the deal and, and uh, targeting the IRGC, uh, its activities, also its finances.
0: Ambassador, if you'd like to.
2: I think one thing what one can look for and should look for is the possibility of an up-tempo in targeting not so much us, but our, pro- our mm-hmm. proxies and allies in uh-huh. contested areas in the region. You're seeing this uh, with events Vincent you're seeing in Iraqi Kurdistan, uh, you can see this in other places as well, which is, you know, in other words, I agree. I think it, right. it, the fact that they're going to openly, be, you know, start something, escalating something directly with the Americans, there's, there's some, a question about that. But I think there are other softer targets that are not
0: us. Okay, what are we looking at? Are we looking at, <clears throat> for instance, what, some sort of Saudi... Assets? Are we looking at the? Are we looking at uh, the border of Israel? Are we looking at Hezbollah doing things? What are the? What are the different things that we're talking about? I think that the Israel Hezbollah thing is probably the last one,
2: given that that one is okay. will lead to certain consequences. But I think in all the other places where there is um, uh, already contested space between between either you know either Kurdish forces or Sunni Arab forces or governments that are friendly are to the, us okay. that will be important for us. In the future, in the near future, as we implement this, uh, you're going to see them try to find ways, both direct and indirect, to squeeze them. Some of that through violence, in other ways as well.
0: Thinking that they, you know, they're going to do that before we're ready enough to respond. Omer, you were nodding your head when uh, when the ambassador was saying he thinks probably not Israel so much. Yeah. I'd, What's your? I, I, I mean, I think the that... president's are getting ready to speak now. Okay. What just happened? It seems to have been a, a good thing. I mean, but let's let's go into some details and stuff. I was mentioning to Mike that one of the things that first struck me that was new, for instance, was uh, attributing. I believe that attributing uh, the Kobar Towers attack in 1996 is new. I believe that the intelligence community has as long uh, assessed this to be correct, but I don't know if that's ever been the official position of the U.S. government. So that's one thing. Just a couple of the things. Uh, What about Omri? I'm going to ask you this. What about saying that they are indeed uh, we're not we are not going to certify because of uh, regarding the sanctions issue? Well, I want you to explain that in a second. But also he did say that they are in violation of the uh, of the JCPOA. Uh, Ambassador Fernandez. I mean, what what else am I? What else are we? What else am I missing? What else is new in this? What does it mean if you'd like to start off? Ambassador, yeah. <laughs> yeah, um, obviously, I mean, it's, uh, I,
2: I think it's uh, terrific to see in black and white and clear-cut terms that mm-hmm. designation of the uh, IRGC right. by the Treasury is something we expected, so it's obviously mm-hmm. a, a really great thing. I think that's obviously the most tangible, uh, immediate thing or the quickest thing coming out of this. What does
0: that mean? What will that, what will that mean? designating all the IRGC, the
1: Treasury designation.
2: Well, I think it puts a, a lot more pressure on the whole question of the financing, the uh, whole question.
1: And it's, a, it's a technical finding, so uh, it's important. This question is actually important as we move through uh, Q&A, I think that all three of us will crystallize what the other side is saying, what is- just, we're we're, we're going to run a little
0: bit late. We're supposed to end at one we We're probably going to have 1.45 since we interrupted to see the president's speech, so we'll be, we'll be OK.
1: The IR- one of the claims that's being made, already being made, was being made a couple days ago, is that the IRGC uh, designation is completely symbolic and meaningless. Uh, sometimes you hear this said as the IRGC is already under financial pressure and heavily sanctioned. Sometimes there's a more technical argument, which is that the IRGC was already completely designated under a separate executive order that has to do with ballistic missiles. So what does it mean to freeze all their assets for terrorism reasons if it was already frozen for ballistic missiles? But the ambassador is right that this puts more financial, more pressure on them. In what sense? This is the first time in history that the United States has said that the, entire, that the military wing of a nation state recognized by the United Nations is, is a terrorist uh, entity. We will now, and this has been already published, administration people and congressional people have leaked this wording to uh, some outlets already out there. Uh, Trump can now go to the Europeans and say, you're working with terrorists. That's a different conversation in the room than you're working with missile proliferators. It simply is. The world works that way. Mm. This thing happens in boardrooms. These things happen in uh, meeting r- in conference rooms. And that is why, even if technically... No additional assets are frozen. It's a huge deal. Okay.
2: Yeah, yeah. No, no, I agree. On uh, um, the more symbolic, but I think still important, I know it's uh, window dressing and we expect it. I, uh, I I appreciate, I think it's important, that vision at the end mm-hmm. about the Iranian people and mm-hmm. that they were the first victims of this regime, Right. And that they're the first and earliest victims that have suffered yeah. so much by the regime. And that vision of the Middle East is, you know, it's kumbaya, maybe, but uh, it needs to be said. So I think that was good as well.
0: Right. Mike, what did you, what strikes you most right now?
2: Affiliates and entities
3: of the Mm RGC. The affiliate issue is something that's very concerning to our our allies in Iraq, Uh, our traditional allies in Iraq, meaning all of the Iraqi people, Mm the Sunnis and the Kurds. This designation. As it's, sent, as, as it's received in Baghdad, literally means Baghdad should purge IRGC entities from its security forces oh, okay. and its ministries. We now have the tool to actually hold Baghdad accountable for allowing or facilitating the IRGC. This move is, is key. We had a panel here last, last week about the Iranian land bridge in Iraq. Right. It's already been
0: established. How does this address that then? That was well, it's a
3: tool. I mean, if you're looking at how do we stop this, then you 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 again use that 18 trillion dollar economy to hug Baghdad tighter than Iran is by saying, "Listen, you have designated
0: terrorists working in your ministries. They have them in your they security have force. Lots of people on the ground." And
3: well, you're looking at seven people would be devastating. Just to remove three would be devastating to the Iraqi security forces. Three key members. You some mean, some like, even prime ministerial candidates. Huh. That are that are being funded by Iran, and I'm talking about. All, I mean, he's a, he's one of the uh, he's one of the Iskazali, I'm talking about Hadi al Because there's no way you're going to designate Hadi al is an affiliate of the IRGC. Right. He is paid by the IRGC. He polls highest in Iraq for prime minister. He's got to be concerned. How do I CPA? How do I how do I hide this money from U.S. Treasury? You know how do I how do I find find a loophole here? These are tools. So. Again, it's not just sanctions. Designating an entity as a terrorist organization also allows the intelligence community to start developing and recommending targets to the Defense Department. And they'll probably be put on the no target list like we have in the past, Um, but it it, it gives you tools. It, It gives us great leverage with Baghdad to be a bulwark. It actually will put pressure Uh, Our senior regional allies will start putting pressure on Baghdad to hug its traditional allies better, its traditional Arab Arab allies tighter than its hugging Iran. It also sends a message to Qatar, sends a message to to other countries, and also, if you're an anti-Russian person, if you're an anti-China, this – we basically not only get to tell our European allies that you're working with a terrorist organization, we get to tell the Russians and the Chinese.
0: What does this do, and does it have any effect on what's happening
3: right now in Syria? It should have tremendous effect. Uh, the money that's going in to prop up Assad. Remember, the the Iranians were emboldened post JCPOA. Uh, Assad was on, on his heels. And then he was bolstered up by the Iran deal. Iran the Iran invited Russia and in. Qasem Soleimani traveled to Moscow. That with Putin. Then we saw the S four hundreds and S three hundreds come into, into Syria. We uh, they were there before when Russia was directly selling to Assad, but we saw a Russian presence. It it sends a message that militias that are being funded by the IRGC in Lebanon and Syria and Iraq, that money could be cut. Therefore, the paycheck goes away. And the paycheck to the Ministry of Interior goes away. The paycheck to Baghdad politicians goes away. Because all of this can be tied back. So it's, uh, it's not designating 100,000. It's not targeting 100,000 proxies. It's targeting seven.
0: I am i I'll just say watching it, you know, we'd all heard about the Iran Policy Review. And we all understood from the administration, we'd heard this again and again, hey, it's not just the JCPOA. There's lots of bad things that are going on. We're going to look at all these things. I thought in lots of ways, it still may be the case, that in lots of ways the Iran policy review was a little bit of deterrence. how to push everyone away and leave the administration alone regarding the JCPOA. I have to say, it's like, that is the work that the government did. that's The speech represents that. I am I'm, I'm pleased. I'm I'm, I'm impressed. impressed. Well, they, and so, wh- why don't we? They do
1: they weren't it? joking about this. This wasn't a trick, right? right. Like I mean, the e- this was all, often misreported, uh, and in in some cases deliberately. Uh, but when you heard over the last three months, you know, there's differences inside the administration. Some people are for keeping the deal, etc. Those were all reflections. Of the overarching idea, which is this administration really did belie- set out to comprehensively confront Iran's non-nuclear activities. And the policy review and all of the debate around it and all of the noise around it was noise about where the nuclear issue fit into that. Right. It wasn't a it wasn't a gambit. It wasn't right. okay. they the goal of the last six months for this administration was formulate an answer to Iran. It's why I began with. Uh, You know and why all three of us have emphasized over and over again. This is not an Iran deal speech This was an Iran speech today. It's not about the deal that that's that's true I do
0: feel and maybe we spoke about this before there feels like there's some urgency as well because certainly the number one thing that this administration has been looking at has been North Korea And so I think that it's I I, I think if there is some urgency to make sure like here's what we don't want we don't want another uh, rogue nuclear state Eight, nine years down the road or sooner,
1: however long it's going to be. Urgency might even be the wrong way to look at it. remember, one of the things that's really, really gets undercovered by this is this happened in entirely the way that it's quote-unquote supposed to. Six months ago, uh, even, starting before that, but certainly six months ago formally, an interagency review process was launched under, uh, under the NSC that polled... Brought in information, distilled it, sent it back out, brought it back in, took it to the deputies' level, took it to the principals' levels, presented it to the president. Three months ago, the same thing happened with the nuclear review. The president said, "I want, to, I want a decertification option. I do not believe that this deal is in America's national interest. I won't do it again." We know from public reports he said that in July, in late July, the NSC initiated a process, hold, took it back, deputies, principals, to the president. There was, there is a sense of urgency that comes from North Korea, right. but on the other hand, there is this was right. done the way it's supposed to be done. Right. No, I, so
2: just um, be... the administration showed something which administrations have to show, which is that American administrations can handle more than one serious, right. complicated, dangerous international issue at the same time. Right. Well,
3: one, one thing
0: you... also. Uh, I want to open it up a second. So why don't you?
2: Oh, sure. The administration's looking forward
3: also. So how do we get a, a better deal? Let's just talk about the nuclear deal for a second. How do we get a better deal? And, and some of the some of the the things that we heard uh, were this will not be a, a renegotiation where Zarif is sitting at the table making demands. This will be a deal that's actually presented to the Iranians with our allies, saying this is the deal. Well, let's stick on yes it. Yes or no. Yeah, let's stick it on it. It doesn't this. require Iran to
0: be part of negotiating. It doesn't yeah. require us to make additional – Concessions. So. Well, I thought that was a central part of what he, the speech is like, we'll get out. We will, we will get out of it. It's
1: what, right? listen, I mean, it's, what, it's what we talked about to look for. Would he or would he say that, right? We talked right. about this half an hour ago, 45 minutes ago, that this administration will go to the Europeans and say, help us fix it, or we're out, and right. then we can have a battle of wills over where, over what happens. But right. we said, you know, look out for it. That's where
0: he settled on. It was, right. He was, explicitly. Um, so let's open it up for a bit. Right, we'll go for about, I guess, to about 140, 145. So let's see. Um, Matt, if you would, if you would wait for the microphone. be a microphone, and ident- yes, identify yourself. Hey, uh, Matt from the Security Studies Group. Um, wondering, <coughs> what's the
2: one thing going forward that not a lot of people have been covering at think tanks
3: that will be very important when it comes to the iran deal something that's just not covered and uh another thing is uh what exactly should congress be doing in these 60 days since uh it seems like
0: the president well, on the gauntlet that's interesting well, only why don't you take the second part first and then either of you if you'd like to talk about what's not being but but let, let's start on part part Cong- congress
1: now congress. uh as soon as the uh as soon as the certifi- certification deadline officially lapses which I think is actually the 16th, not the 15th, but Congress is about to initiate a 60-day review process during which they can blow up the nuclear deal by restoring on an expedited process, restoring sanctions on clear majority vote. No filibuster, uh, 51%. There's very little appetite to do that, not least of all because, as the president said, if he gets frustrated with this, if Congress doesn't step up or the Europeans doesn't step up, he'll just revoke this with with the deal with the stroke of a pen, the way that it was always possible. So Congress now is being engaged by the administration to work with them in creating leverage for approaching the Europeans and the Iranians on the deal's fatal flaws. Remember what we're up to. We, the administration wants to, is, seeks to, the game plan is, mm-hmm. seeks to strengthen the deal. All instruments of US power, all instruments of diplomacy and political work are oriented toward that. So Congress's task now is uh, to assist the administration in strengthening the deal and building up leverage. How will they do it? There is, uh, as of of this morning, it became public that uh, there's legislation floating around that I I think is currently being described as corker cotton legislation that uh, will seek to impose benchmarks that say the Iranians, it's going to be US policy, the Iranians have to do this number of things, no more ballistic missiles or reductions on ballistic missiles and so on. So they will essentially lock what the president has just said into statute, or they will try to. Uh, Now, it's being described as a heavy lift to get to 60 in the Senate on this. I think that's probably a generous description. Uh, But you just heard the president say that he'll do it without them if they don't step up. But the specific answer, what to look for Congress, is they will, over the next 90 days, not 60 days, because they have until the next certification, 90 days uh, attempt to work with work with the president to build leverage. Um, thats would you like to?
2: <clears throat> yeah, I think the thing that uh, will get more attention that hasn't is the. Uh, it's been alluded to in passing a couple times. Is the the IRGC octopus is going to be under a much brighter spotlight. Uh, you have a trial opening in New York. Did it opened already. The Reza Zarab trial. You know, November. Um, you know that. Shed light on you know money laundering, smuggling operations with the uh, with the IRGC. Now it becomes actually uh, with it with, with a terrorist organization, uh, and that involves, for example, politics in Turkey and stuff like that. So that the octopus and of course the IRGC has its finger in a million pies uh, will now be under a much brighter spotlight than it would have been before today.
0: Um, Gentlemen, right here, Hussein. Yes. Sign, if you could identify yourself.
4: It's yes, Hussein Abdul Hussein with the Kuwaiti newspaper Al Rai. Um, I just want to, uh, you know, the, the sanctions and the diplomatic pressure is, is all great. But my thinking is that uh, probably the only lesson that we learned from the past decade was that the only way to kill a militia is with another militia. And Michael, I know you were in the thick of this with the surge of troops and, you know, connecting with the Sahwat forces. At this point, I don't see where are our, 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 the militias are friendly militias than the Kurds and even the Kurds they're being pressured from from our allies the the, the Turks and the Iraqis and everybody, everybody else so how do you see the, the the supplementary efforts on the ground what ambassador Fernandez called the the, the ground operation who are the the, the the guys that will pick up the arms or where are the arms coming from in the first place? And go fight, uh, uh, Mohandes yeah, and
0: If you want to answer that, because that kind of comes back to what I was asking. Look, sanctions are great. But what about the ground they're swallowing? What's your? Well, I think
3: there'll be some volunteers today after this this speech, <laughs> based on what we heard. So, so it's it's not about necessarily fighting the militias. I mean, the Hashd al shabi are a hundred thousand strong, maybe another hundred thousand reserves. But it's not the Hashd al shabi it's Kataba's al-Balah. It's a Saab Haq. So that's 500 and that's 1,000. But they're the key leadership. They're the ones that actually train these organizations. Um, al Imam Ali, other groups like that, that don't necessar- necessarily need to be countered with a, a Sunni response or a Kurdish response, simply need to be targeted financially and also put pressure on Baghdad to actually arrest, which they won't. But... There's, there's things we can do, but this this should be an opportunity for our allies, both in Iraq and allies in the region, to start providing us recommendations and solutions on how to do this, uh, intelligence on how to do this, intelligence and evidence that allows us to continue to build up the case. And we, again, it's not a good thing, but the RGC is going to give us every reason and every bit of evidence we need over the next 90 days.
0: I mean, if I can just... I mean, I think that Hussein has a point here, and this has been, this was also part of the, ambassador, the ambassador's point, a lot has happened in the last eight years, including Russia. Um, so these are important things. And it's, it's difficult to know exactly how this is being plotted, if there are people in the administration like, well, good, let the IRGC or let one of the militias take a shot at someone, or maybe Maybe Hezbollah really will make a run at the Israelis, or some IRGC guy will wind up on the border. Short of that, I, I mean, if you're talking about how that, how the Iranian position collapses in the region, yeah, there is no answer to that, I mean, or not in this speech, if that's kind of what you're getting at, because of Russia, among other things. I mean, uh, this gentleman here, you can just wait for the microphone, please. <coughs>
1: Hi, Bo Wilcox for the Osgood Center for International Studies. Uh, My question pertains to the dissenting opinion. Now, the the facts are going to be hard to argue against for those who believe that uh, Iran is not a threat. We should keep on going with it. So my question is, what are these dissenters saying within the U.S. itself? And then why haven't other countries such as Russia or China hopped on the bandwagon to start uh, making measures against Iran? Because obviously the IEA report has been publicized, especially to Russia. Thank you. I'm ready. Yeah, yeah uh, and the reason I pulled out my phone while you were asking that this time is because there's a uh, conference call that the dissenters just wrapped up, and <laughs> readouts are starting to bounce yeah. around. Uh, <laughs> what are they saying? They are saying that uh, well, first of all, their tactics, and then uh, what and substance. The tactics is to conflate uh, decertification with bailing out on the deal. Uh, and this has been explicit in a lot of uh, their talking points, including, like, Ambassador Wendy Sherman knows the difference between Inara, the Review Act, and the JCPOA. Why does she give speeches like she doesn't? Right? So tactically, it's been to elevate, uh, it's been to elevate the cost and the risks, and that's simply what they do. So they say the deal is working. Iran is complying. Why would you decertify Certification doesn't ask whether the deal is working or Iran is complying. Certification asks whether sanctions relief is proportionate, appropriate, and in the national interest. Right? That's the answer. And that's the obvious answer. So the first is just non sequitur. And then what are they saying? They're saying that this deal stabilized the Middle East. It prevented a conflict and that this will lead us to war. It's not particularly original. They believe it worked for them last time. That's what they're saying this time. The problem is those talking points sound stale. As uh, the ambassador was saying, those talking points sound stale after two years where we saw the opposite. Right, it's no longer good enough to say this deal or war when uh, the Iran deal floated on the you know floated to, across the finish line. Forgive the mixed metaphor, on uh, a sea of Syrian blood. It's just not as compelling. Uh, it's no longer enough to say uh, we'll have the most intrusive inspections regime ever and Iran is complying and the IAEA has (coughs) verified that Iran is complying when two weeks ago the IAEA said that they've been unable to verify full implementation of the deal and that when they say that Iran is complying, they're merely saying they haven't caught Iran cheating yet, but they're not allowed to look where the Iranians might be cheating. It's just harder to make that case. But that's what they're saying. Rehash 2015 talking points. Uh, Other questions?
0: Um, In front here, if you could wait one second and identify yourself. (coughs)
1: Lori Milroy, Kurdistan 24. I'm, I'm a bit. Uh, we have ongoing a crisis involving Iranian-backed militias facing the Kurds, and I don't know if it would have been appropriate for President Trump to have addressed it, but it seems somehow absent. Um, and I wondered two things. One, you know, do you think like a you an open Pretty now, as he's has designated the IRGC as a terrorist organization, there's a terrorist organization now, in part part of it is a front country in the Kurds, that it be appropriate for the United States to threaten to bomb those troops unless they withdraw from their threatening positions. I
3: think I think what it does is it actually. I would, if I was a Peshmerga fighter in Kirkuk, looking at Kitab Hezbollah flying their flags from M1 Abrams. To, tanks, I would feel comforted by this this message today. It doesn't mean that we're going to start targeting directly, but if they move after this speech and start attacking an ally, the question's going to be asked, do we target a designated terrorist group? And that'll be throw, thrown about within the DOD and the NSC. The NSC did, is aware of what's going on. Everybody's aware of what's going on. Just waiting for that red line to be crossed, the red line that hasn't been vocally <laughs> put out there. But Baghdad keeps denying that they're doing this. Baghdad says, we're not doing this. We're not going to do this. So, so there are messages going to the Baghdad government. Um, I would argue that Kitab Izbala, and AH, if they do move, we're asking for, for proof, actually. We're asking for photographs of AH flags flying from tanks and KH flags flying from tanks to be able to pass on. But, you know, that's – I would find comfort in today's speech if I was a Peshmerga fighter. You basically are now staring at a designated terrorist affiliate across across the, the berm. But um, I'm not making decisions.
1: I'm not – yeah, I for second? Second? Sure. I want to address something that's – it's more broadly uh, around this question, which is gaps in the speech, what was left out? Okay. Uh, it's not just the Peshmerga, it's also the Peshmerga. Listen, this speech was a powerful message, and uh, certainly I think this panel and I think most people in this room uh, found, it, found it comforting and clarifying, uh, or comforting that there is such clarity behind U.S. policy toward Iran right now. But uh, there are still a lot of things to be filled in. The first is what happens geopolitically, something we've been talking about. But, you know, this is something Congress is going to have to hold hearings on. Right. Congress, when when the president said that he's ordering the Treasury Department to fully designate the IRGC under uh, 13224, very strong statement. Also, however, the implementation of a congressional mandate that was passed 517 to 5 in Congress. And Congress is going to want to ensure that that's made real. And that's part of this discussion we've been having about holes that have to be filled in. The next step is, okay, so you gave an authority to designate. What are you doing about it? And that's as much for Congress as for the President. Uh, Congress mandated it; has a voice in it. They're going to want to see teeth. Uh, they're going to want to see this thing filled in as much as anybody else. Uh, those are legitimate questions to ask. It's not legitimate to trash the speech, but those are legitimate questions.
0: Why don't you take the opportunity while you're going while you're going through? Why don't we have concluding statements, so we gonna say like what both what they think about the speech and the uh, uh, Treasury's. Treasury's designation, and going forward, oh, just just a, a minute or so, just wrap it up. Has a he did, uh,
1: the president did what he should, exactly what he should have done in uh, a technical sense. More broadly, obviously, yes, this was a fantastic uh, moment of clarity. It was an important moment in uh, the U.S. Uh, asserting, reasserting itself and reasserting its interests in the Middle East of no longer subordinating the Iran deal, but uh, this was a speech that was the culmination of a process working, two internal executive processes and mandates from Congress. Uh, And for lack of a better way of putting it, the machine simply worked. An administration that rode to victory on promises to restore American stature and restore American prerogatives, specifically in the context of the Iran deal and, of course, more broadly, initiated several reviews that culminated in a speech that reflected them. that is is undergirded by policy that at least provides the predicates for living up to it. That's something that won't be reported on today. The substance will be reported, and the personnel and infighting will be reported. But the boring version of this is that about a year into the administration, the machine worked. Interagency process, congressional mandates, and so on. Very nice way to put it Then, Yeah, the
2: administration took uh, a hard thing on the easy way out, would have been to follow in the footsteps of the previous administration and of some other uh, international actors and kind of look the other way kind of dumbly nod and ignore Iranian behavior and kind of ignore the glaring uh, contradictions and omissions in the JCPOA and gets kind of nod and kind of look and kind of kick the kick the can down the road the administration took as i said the serious adult uh, approach to to do the hard thing, uh, and, and that is something they should be uh, congratulated for. The challenge is uh, to there is heavy lifting in the region, and we're going to need. Hussein's question was right on. We're going to need. Uh, we need more horses. Um, thank you, Ambassador Mike. Oh, uh,
3: <clears throat> so this we just restored leverage in the Middle East. Uh, we just restored confidence um, in our Sunni regional allies, the people of Iraq, people of Syria, Lebanon, and and Yemen. Um, I focus on Iran's influence in Iraq, mainly. And this just gave us tools and levers to be able to actually bring Iraq back into the the Arab and, and U.S. sphere of influence and put pressure on Iraq to purge and to push back against the Iranian takeover of Iraq. And I had a chance to brief the Trump transition team early on, and this was before Joel Rayburn was in the National Security Council. He was in the National Defense University. And I asked him, what should I tell them? He said, we need to stop the Iranian takeover of Iraq. Uh, I'll leave out the other things he said to do. But this gives us leverage and, and tools and levers in Iraq that we just haven't had
0: since Obama took office. Um, that'll be it. Thank you all very much for coming. Thanks to a wonderful panel. I told you it was going to be great in the arts. And thank you to Hudson Institute. <laughs>